Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're in the lovely Sierra Foothills town of Auburn, California. It's the county seat of Placer County, which, according to the latest CAL FIRE maps, sits in the high and very high risk zones of wildfire hazards. Other nearby towns in those zones include Paradise, Placerville, Grass Valley, Nevada City, and all of Lake Tahoe. The very high risk zone covers a lot of Southern California too, including areas surrounding Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, Orange County, and San Diego. In fact, one out of every four Californians lives in a place at risk for being hit when the next wildfire burns. For our second event focusing on wildfire season, we're going to talk about what it means to live in a high-risk zone for wildfires, what you need to know, how you need to prepare, how things are changing from forest management and firefighting to utility usage and home insurance policies. Listen to a great group of panelists whose jobs have involved making a lot of big decisions about the wildfires that have hit California in the past few years. They'll talk about those decisions and their impacts, and how all of that will probably change your lifestyle and the place you live. So hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And my name is Vanessa Richardson and I'm the executive director of the organization. And what we do is typically and regularly hold cool events as we call them with cocktails, beer, wine. And we talk about what's going on around California, what's innovative, what should we know about, who are the people doing these things, how can we help as citizens, residents, taxpayers, volunteers, what have you. Uh, we have them at fun spaces like here at the Oddfellows Hall in Auburn, which I think was built in 1852 and is a great space. And uh, we basically, well, I have a margarita down here. Um, the panelists are going to be dry tonight, but we typically, I just feel it's always great to have an informal conversation like you would over a pint of beer or a glass of wine about what's going on in the Golden State. Tonight we're having what we do call a, a policy and a pint discussion. Uh, typically we focus on that kind of event about what's going on in and around uh, California, but really what's coming out of the state capitol in terms of politics and policy and how it's affecting us. So this one is a special event in particular I'd mentioned to the audience before. It's our 50th event, 5-0. And uh, also the first one my father, Gary Richardson, has agreed to come to. So shout out to my dad. It took 50 events, but he finally showed up. Thank you, dad. So we are doing one uh, tonight on wildfire season in California, and it is the second one that we have done. Uh, this is the second one we are doing. We did one in June where we interviewed Wade Crowfoot, He's the new head of the Agency of Natural Resources, so he leads CAL FIRE, uh, Water Resources, California Parks and Recs, and a lot of climate change initiatives um, that will be happening in the state. But what made us decide maybe to do part two and three were that the majority of questions that came to him were for about wildfire season, how his departments were preparing for it, and how people should prepare. So we decided to do a second one, move it out of Sacramento, and move it into a high-risk zone, which Placer County is. I, I think it's butting up next to a very high-risk zone uh, for wild, wildfire hazards, and talk really in-depth about what to do, how to prepare, and what to expect down the road if you live in a high-risk or very high-risk zone for wildfire hazards. Uh, and this year is 
I think it's showing what is happening, even if wildfire has not yet hit, knock wood, here in the Sierra foothills and the Sierra Nevadas, there's still the repercussions, the ramifications of past wildfires. And they're hitting the, pan uh, the panelists. They're hitting the residents here. Obviously, home insurance policies, um, should we install cameras, sirens? Should we rent goat herds? Should we build hunker-in-place bunkers? All these things that people are thinking about that they probably didn't think about a couple of years ago. So we're going to talk about that, um, many of those things, with a great group of panelists whose jobs involved or still involve making a lot of big decisions about the wildfires that hit California in the past few years and see what they say about the decisions they made, the impacts they've had so far, and also get their advice about living in a place that's gonna be at high risk for the foreseeable future. What we need to do, what we need to know about it, what we need to do about it, and uh, how things are gonna change going forward for better or for worse. Before I have the panelists introduce themselves, I wanna give a few special thanks to people who made this event happen. Uh, we, again, like I mentioned, we're holding this at the Odd Fellows Hall in Auburn. So I'd like to thank Ed Spraka, the former Nobel, uh, the former Nobel, I forgot your title, Ed, but he is basically, he runs the joint. So Ed, thank you very much for lending us this lovely space. Also special thanks to Heather Williams from the California Natural Resources Agency, Pascal Fasoler from Ubinet, from Placer County, Lisa Burleson and Wendy Williams. So I want to thank those ladies for their help in putting this event together. Volunteers are helping out tonight. I mentioned my dad, Gary Richardson, my mom, Yvonne Richardson. Also from the Oddfellows Hall, Melinda, Pierre, and Wanda. Thank you very much. To the Placer County team doing the Facebook live streaming, Eric Bergen and Chris Gray. Thank you. Good job. Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio, who is recording this for audio and putting it up as podcast. Thank you. Of course, to the panelists, always busy. Thank you for taking the time it's out of a busy schedule. And last but not least, to the audience for taking time out of your schedule as well. I'm going to ask my questions first, and then we'll have the audience ask theirs after I'm done. I don't introduce the panelists. I think they always do a good job introducing themselves. I always just like to kick in a personal note there so we see who the person is behind the suit and the blazers. So uh, besides your name and your current role and organization, a personal note about you. I, I think I've read correctly that two of our panelists have just retired um, and maybe they are living in their dream retirement place in California. I think both of them live in kind of a high risk zone, wildfire zone. Uh, yes, so I wanted to ask, obviously, besides name, current role, and organization, all four of you, um, what would be your dream retirement place in California? Is it in a high-risk, uh, low-risk zone? Does that matter? Uh, just basically a place that you live now or someplace you'd like to move to later in California, wildfires be damned, where are you, where's your dream place to retire to if you're not already there yet? So I'm going to start with a gentleman on my right. Hi, I'm Michael Picker, and uh, I actually did buy a house on the South Fork of the American. I've been uh, rafting and kayaking for almost 40 years now, and uh, uh, y y as a kayaker, you always have a home river. Mine is the, the American, and particularly the South Fork of the American, because it has good flows. And uh, after 30 years of trying, I finally ha found a house that's right on the river. Were, were you out on the river last Thursday? 
afternoon around one o'clock? That's when I went on my rafting trip, I think. I don't believe I was. I think I was doing what I, I do when I unretired last uh, uh, 10 days ago, so. Oh, 10 days ago, <laughs> okay. Well, congratulations on retirement. Next up. Hi, good evening. Uh, I'm Ken Pimlot. Um, I retired as the director and chief of CAL FIRE uh, in December of last year. And uh, I, uh, my dream, and, and it's coming to fruition, is building a house and uh, tending to my uh, forest land on the south end of El Dorado County, so on the opposite side of the county from, from Michael. And um, despite everything that we have gone through in the state, and certainly as the chief of CAL FIRE, the challenges with wildfire in the state. Uh, it is my dream uh, place. Uh, I plan to stay in California with my family and friends and understanding the risk and what we're getting ourselves into. Uh, but the idea of being able to restore the forest land, um, engage in work on the ground with my own hands that I've been helping landowners and residents in California do for my entire 30 plus year career uh, means a lot to me and uh, it's close to my family uh, here in the state. So I'm certainly looking forward uh, you know, to the next chapter in life, but certainly have stayed very busy in the last eight months, um, not only personally, but you know, engaging in this very important issue of fire in California. All right, and moving on to the men who still have day jobs. <laughs> yes, I, I, I look forward to being retired though. <laughs> um, so thank you for inviting me to this important discussion. I hope it'll be interesting. Um, I'm Saren Taylor. I'm the senior legislative advocate, which is a fancy term for lobbyist, for the Personal Insurance Federation of California. We represent large property and casualty insurers in California uh, who write personal line home and auto insurance. And so think, if you watch TV, think Limu Emu and Flow and like a good neighbor. Um, and it's a pleasure to be on the panel with these gentlemen who have decades of experience. and. Um, yeah, I've been with PIF uh, only about a year, but I have 20 years of experience doing complex policy and budget work with the legislature and the executive branch. Um, I do, do think about retirement, though, and uh, my wife and I, we met in grad school in San Diego. I was getting a master. We both got our master's in health administration. And um, after graduating, we lived, I lived in this apartment in Ocean Beach outside of Point Loma, funky little beach town. Loved it, and we always talk about uh, eventually retiring back there and getting a little play, B big enough, but not big enough that the kids would come back. <laughs> and uh, that, is, that is the plan. <laughs> do, do you know where that is on the CAL FIRE uh, risk zone map? Uh, what I, color? I want to say that's, a pre that's pretty far away from the wooey. <laughs> that should be on the low fire risk scale. And I'm, it's probably on the high uh, climate ocean uh, creep scale, though. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. All right, um, my name is Todd Leopold. I'm the County Executive Officer for Placer County. Uh, been in this role since January of 2018. Um, Really excited. I'm one. Thank you for being here. I think this is a, a good topic and one for uh, this region as a whole. You know, Placer County's uh, fairly unique. I I was uh, fortunate to actually be a county manager in Colorado, but prior to come to California. So, um, and we dealt with uh, fires uh, just kind of in the foothills of the Denver metro area. So having some similar characteristics and honestly some deja vu uh, that we've had uh, around here unfortunately I think this is just such an important topic that uh, you know from dealing with not only our, our 
jurisdictions that we work with, but also directly down to individual residents and how they live and reside and how do we grow and land use is, is a critical piece here, um, as well as identifying uh, a number of the issues around how do you live in a forested area that um, honestly needs some, some help. Um, and so we'll probably have some conversations about that tonight. Um, you know, obviously I have quite a while to go before I retire, um, but uh, I'll tell you, I've uh, being here and sometimes experiencing other places makes you appreciate things so much more. And and uh, I know uh, Placer County's just been uh, really good to me and my family. And uh, this is a beautiful area. If you haven't been in Auburn and even up into uh, the Sierras and obviously Tahoe's uh, a place in of itself, but um, really love this area. And I'm hoping we're going to stay here for a while. Great. Thank you, gentlemen, for, for being here. So I have a question for each of you, and I'm going to start with Ken. And I think uh, my question for you starting off is, uh, you were uh, chief of CAL FIRE since 2011, is that right, about eight years? So you saw, obviously, a lot of fires during that time, over your 30 years. But it seemed like in those eight years, and particularly, I think, for most of us Californians, we really focused on the wildfires of the past two years. Um, because they put the, obviously they were the biggest, the deadliest, um, uh, the, 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 the superlatives just really came fast and furious. I was wondering for you, what was particularly notable and memorable about the past couple of years or the past, while you were Cal Fire Chief, in terms of the fires um, that you were in charge of putting out, how were they different, in what way? Um, any any differences in the methods that you had to use? So just what has stood out in the past few years of how to fight fires and how those fires have arisen and, and, and spread? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will tell you, not just me as a career firefighter with CAL FIRE, but um, anyone in the profession in California that's been engaged uh, in fire in California in the last several decades will tell you the last five years um, are really unparalleled in our, you know, our prior all of our career in the beginning. Uh, we had fire sieges uh, historically, but they were sort of isolated, maybe you know, one-off events one or two times uh, a summer. The last several years really progressively got worse, and by that I mean fire season lasting longer, and really it's a year-round um, uh, issue anymore in California and much of the, the western United States. The peak still is in summer, but we are finding fire conditions in January. Matter of fact, in 2000, and I believe it was 2011, we had over 300 acres burn in um, just uh, east of Arcata in Humboldt County, one of the wettest places uh, in the state. And the day after New Year's, we had a, a very large uh, fire. So bottom line is, for me, what stood out and one of the most challenging pieces of all of this was the impact it had on our firefighters and all those public safety workers trying to protect these communities. It was a never-ending event. We started early in the year with uh, Fire uh, March, and we were going all the way, obviously, through uh, November with large fires. And firefighters really didn't get a break, uh, working literally a month at a time with maybe a day off. Uh, either on the fire line or at f in covering fire stations. And so the fatigue was significant. And with no end in sight, how do you manage that? How do you find a way to keep this battle rhythm going, knowing you're going to have to sustain it all the way through, um, you know, some point into the winter. So I think that was really the most challenging and part that stood out the most is how long these are lasting. 
And then it's the conditions by which they're burning. Matter of fact, I believe this last week is the five-year anniversary of the King Fire, which burned just right out our door here to the south. Uh, that fire, it moved 15 miles in one afternoon, almost 50,000 acres moving to the east towards Lake Tahoe. Those kinds of fire conditions were unprecedented at the time in the state, but every year after that, that was 2014, every year after that, fires were burning at exponential rates, spotting miles ahead of each other. So uh, all of these conditions, I think, were really what stood out um, as the biggest challenges we all faced. Yeah, I feel like I, I personally noticed a lot of uh, wind uh, I don't know what the term is, but uh, a red flag watch uh, had to do with wind. And I was wondering in terms of weather conditions, hotter, drier, but windier, is that, was that a big deal in terms of wind uh, causing a lot of this fire? Is that a new thing in terms of the weather conditions that you've been seeing? So firefighters are facing the impact of climate change head on in terms of these uh, significant weather events. They're more extreme. Yes, we've had wind events throughout California. It's always had historic fire season, but the wind events are becoming more extreme. Uh, we're seeing again in the case of the uh, fires in the North Bay in 2017, 80 mile an hour gusts coming across the peaks uh, north of Santa Rosa, uh, and they're sustained. Southern California, the Thomas fire in 2017, 13 days of a red flag warning. We don't know of any previous red flag warning that lasted consistently for that length of time. And that's for very low humidities, uh, warm temperatures, and, and windy conditions. And so, so, yes, we are seeing just the extremes are becoming more extreme. All right, and Michael, for you, uh, next question. I feel like I, I read a lot about you this year. You were, uh, just until 10 days ago, head of the California Public Utilities Commission. And uh, that got a lot of uh, attention because you had to handle, in, in part, um, one of the responsibilities was handling PG&E and its uh, liability in wildfires, future responsibilities, uh, it's uh, the, the bankruptcy, I guess, it's going through, uh, managing that or helping out with that. I was wondering if you could just give us a summary what the CPUC, it's an acronym for Public Utilities Commission, came up with regarding wildfire prevention plans for investor-owned utilities like pg and others, and especially for residents here in the Sierra foothills and, and, and in other high-risk zones, what are the new standards during extreme weather? I think, obviously, turning off the power lines is something we hear about, but if there's other things that just, uh, you know, the summary that we should know about utilities, um, what they need to do going forward, and, and how will that affect us? Uh, unfortunately, this is going to call for a little bit of an information dump, and so my apologies. There's, there's basically two electric grids in the United States. There's the bulk, the, the, the very large transmission electric system that, that usually operates over 160 uh, kilovolts, uh, and then you have the, the, the distribution system that basically st uh, steps down that power and then takes it to people's homes and businesses and to the many communities throughout the state. The, the theory for 100 years has been that the bulk transmission system is what's important. You're, you, the, the whole system counts on, expects, and, and plans for frequent failures in the distribution system. That's always happened. Uh, it, the, the restart of the grid comes from the bulk transmission system. So when you go out and look outside your house, those thin wires that you see, the three wires at the top of the pole, uh, are, are really probably at about uh, 26 
uh, KV. It, for the hundred years, those failures didn't result in a whole lot of problems. And all of a sudden it's changed. And it's not that the utilities are, are more corrupt or they're stupider, something's changed. And so I think that Ken described some of the conditions in the West. Um, I will point out that only one in 10 fires, uh, wildfires comes from electric equipment. About half of those are actually caused by extrinsic factors like uh, mylar balloons. Uh, every year the, the utilities get together and campaign for legislation to ban those mylar balloons. Have not had a whole lot of success. Uh, bears and animals, big problem. Um, you know, the uh, 100-acre fire started two years ago in Chico area by a bear who decided to climb a, uh, a pole, and she made a life-changing mistake, <laughs> and uh, and triggered a 100-acre fire. So, what's changed, I think, is that that a more people are living in areas that are prone to fires. The areas that are prone to fires are growing. The amount of uh, fuel, because of years of drought and climate change, is actually expanding. And people increasingly demand electric service in those homes that are now in those hazardous areas. And the utilities under California law are required to build that infrastructure. So we're sort of at, uh, at one of those, those points where a lot of different factors are going to contribute to contribute to these kinds of challenges. So uh, about six years ago at the PUC, just before I got there, we started to figure out that uh, we are going to face this challenge. So we, we built a relationship with CAL FIRE. This is unusual in government. We actually put teams together to work together to map the state in a, in a comprehensive way as to where there was wildfire hazard, where there was fuels, where there was the potential for, uh, for difficult fires to manage, and where's their electrical infrastructure. At that point, we also started to upgrade the vegetation management requirements, accepting the fact that something had changed and we have a lot of older infrastructure that was, was expected to fail. That that was the, the general theory. So vegetation management, the, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you really want to know, the forestry industry in California is built around the electric utility industries right at this point. There are linemen and foresters coming from all over the western United States to expand the areas of clearance around uh, electric wires in the high fire hazard zone around the state of California. So a lot of money is also going into hardening that grid. And so we have constant debates within the Public Utilities Commission because we're not safety regulators, we're economic regulators. And what we do is tell people, go do what you gotta do to make it safe. Here's some, some, some regulations that you should actually incorporate into your expenditure plans bring those expenditure plans back to us and we'll approve them. Well, if you're a ratepayer advocate who has an equal voice before the PUC, you're probably gonna argue, you don't need to do everything, you only need to do one thing. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard the argument that the lifespan of a wooden pole should be 77 years throughout the state, 
And if the utility can't keep that pole operating as a strong carrier of electricity for 77 years, then they're being negligent. And the reality is, is that not every part of the state is the same. Not every pole is in the same place. They're not every pole is facing the same wind conditions. Not every pole has the same equipment on it. Some of them have two, maybe three different telecommunication utility stuff on it. So all these things together put us in a much different condition. What should we do? Should we pay people to move out of these wildfire hazard zones? That's actually a state policy. We are moving people out of flood zones. We are moving people out of coastal areas that are gonna be affected by sea level rise. Last year's um, uh, annual planning survey from the Office of Planning and Research indicates that there are 30 different communities in two counties throughout the state that are actually planning, planning and carrying out what we call managed retreat. That's what requires to move four million people out of the wildfire hazard zone. Excuse me, four million, peop four million people out of four million structures in the wildfire hazard zones across the state so that we could cut off electricity. Alternately, we could tell the utilities they no longer have a legal responsibility to serve electricity to people who live in the wildfire hazard zones. That would probably result in some managed retreat right there, cheaper than buying people out. Uh, I'm sure those of us who have houses in the wildfire areas would, you know, kind of grumble about it. Um, or we could do what they do in San Diego. After their fire in 2006, 2007, they spent a lot of time arguing with people. How, how strong were the winds? Did they exceed the manufacturer's limits for the poles, or was the utility negligent? And you, you spent a lot, we saw a lot of experts making arguments on both sides, and the, the duty to prov provide um, the strongest defense was on the utility, and they couldn't overcome the, the lack of information. So San Diego spent about a half a billion dollars digitizing the landscape. They put wind anemometers, weather uh, telemetry all over the mountains around San Diego. So at this point, the Weather Service uses their data, the Navy uses their data for their flights into San Diego, and everybody else uses that because it's canyon by canyon. What we found is that the wind speeds that the Weather Service provided at the top of the mountain was not an indicator of the wind speeds at the bottom of the mountain. And because people had operated under that assumption for many, many, many years, we put infrastructure in places where it was more likely to fail than we should have assumed. So all those things. We told them, yeah, go ahead and turn people off if you think that there's a problem. Over the course of five years, as they perfected that, they got it down to 300 people would be cut off for 28 or 48 hours. Now, in a dense urban area, I'm gonna go back to the technology here, you have a mesh. Power can flow more than one direction. Out here, you have long radial lines that go between communities, sometimes connecting people for population centers that are isolated by 20 miles of forest. That's a different proposition than having an outage in a, in a populated zone. But it's better than being the source 
of ignition of fire. So two questions about that in terms of um, when the power goes out, mandated, uh, how long for residents here in these areas would it more or less take for it to come back on? So the whole system really is built around that metric that assumes that the distribution system is going to have failures. And the whole system is generally what you measure. And the whole utility itself is graded on how long, on average, all their customers suffer an outage. And the average here in California is somewhat less than the national. It's about four minutes per year. But I'll guarantee you that for those of us who live in rural areas, it's a lot higher. And that's because you're dependent on that one line. Now, if you're separated from communities 20 miles apart and you have a major wind event, a major fire risk hazard, and the utility were to shut it down, you don't just turn it back on when the hazard goes away. You go look to make sure something didn't happen, that uh, equipment didn't fail. If you've got to go between communities, up and over hills, looking at deep mountains, ravines, I mean, think about the geography here, it's going to take longer than it will in an urban area. So we've had our first major event here in California. Large parts of uh, the eastern Sierras were outed by, San, uh, by Southern California Edison because of extremely uh, high winds and high fire hazard. There was a fire in Big Pine near where they, where they did it, uh, what, we, what the industry calls de-energization. Outage is something you don't count on. De-energization is something you plan on. It used to historically just be done for maintenance. But we now call it public safety power shutoff because it's only in the, in the, the event of these ultra-hazardous conditions. There they had the fire in Big Pine. There they had conditions that spread up and down the Eastern Sierra. They, they, they shut it off. 11,000 people. There's still 3,000 people who are currently out of service. Um, and that's because they need to have some repairs. And, um, but it was only for about 12 hours. But your mileage may vary. All right. Another, another hot topic. I'm, I'm just going to use that pun, I guess, all night long. Hot topic in, uh, in terms of living in a high-risk zone is home insurance policies and what's going on in terms of how insurance companies are rethinking about issuing them or reissuing them. And uh, that's obviously a, a, a topic of discussion in some town halls up and down the Sierras. Um, so, Sarah, and I wanted to ask you in terms of, because you um, talk with the insurance companies and represent them, what is their current take on issuing policies in these wildfire zones? What changes do they want? Do they want uh, you know, higher rates? Do they want more wildfire mitigation steps taken? Uh, I was uh, sent an article from the Wall Street Journal about how, there's, um, uh, how they want to use different models for forecasting fires that are not currently used. And then I think also in terms of working with the state, I mean, these are private companies. The state is uh, government. What can the state do, if anything, to help out affected homeowners? So yes, a multi-part question, but uh, yeah, give us a summary of what's going on in terms of the home insurance uh, companies and their policyholders. Right. So an easy one. I think my boss was quoted in that Wall Street Journal article, actually. Um, you know, I wish I had an easy, quick answer to this problem. Um, would be make everybody very happy, I'm sure. Um, 
but I think the reality, and I think you heard these gentlemen talk about this sort of this idea that things have changed, and things have changed for insurance companies as well. And I don't think that anybody really anticipated the magnitude of these recent catastrophic fires. So we're all adjusting to this new normal. Um, climate change has created a new wildfire reality for California, uh, with approximately 25% of the state's population in these very high fire threat areas. And 10 of the most destructive fires in state history haven't occurred since 2015, these gentlemen talked about. And candidly, I think the insurance industry is in a time of transition. Um, two years ago, they had a certain view of wildfire risk, and that view of the risk has changed by orders of magnitude. Um, it's not a stable environment, and we're trying to find really a new equilibrium um, so that we can address these problems. Um, I saw an article this week as well, It was, and I thought it was really good. There was a couple uh, from El Dorado County, and he was a, a insurance broker and she was a realtor. And I thought, and they were talking about the problems in the real estate market, and I thought he summed it up really well when he talked about that insurance companies can't gather enough premium to cover losses from catastrophic fires. And major insurers are now reluctant to write new business or they're reducing risk uh, through non-renewals. Um, but smaller insurers are trying to fill the void and take that risk. Um, but the marketplace is going to stay that way for a little while and it's become really difficult to insure against wildfire risk. Um, most pricing that actuaries put in place uh, on homes is based on one or two structures being lost in a fire, not thousands. And that's what we're seeing. But I mean, I think we need to acknowledge that it has resulted in some real challenges for communities in these high fire risk areas uh, like this one. Um, you know, folks are seeing their rates double and triple. They're getting non-renewed, they're frustrated, they've been with their insurance company for 15 years, feel that they did nothing wrong, I'm doing all the right things I'm supposed to do, I'm cleaning up my pine needles, I'm doing my defensible space, and so the, the struggle is real, and we have to really think about ways to, to getting at your point with those models that they talked about in the Wall Street Journal, can we get models that can more granularly look at these risks and be able to you know, provide more opportunity and revitalize this insurance market in these high-risk areas. Um, it's, the data on it is, is not clear on, on how great these sort of mitigation efforts that homeowners do really work. I was told that Paradise was a firewise community. I don't know if that's true. I know that uh, Fountain Grove and Sonoma was. And those were entire communities that were hardened. Uh, in Fountain Grove, many of the homes were built after 2008 to the new building standards. Um, and in these worst case catastrophic fires, even those type of hardening uh, and mitigation measures were not enough. And so insurers are really in this spot where they're trying to look at their risk portfolios. Uh, we had one insurer out here who'd been in business for 100 years, Merced Property and Casualty. Um, they went out of business because they had too much concentration risk. Um, so there's a variety of problems that we need to look at. I spend most of my time this year in the legislature having these conversations. I get called in. There's senators and assembly members who got non-renewed. They were not happy. It was not a pleasant conversation. 
Um, I sort of joked with one that, well, at least you know that insurers don't discriminate because you get everybody gets treated the same. Um, but this is going to be, to, I'm going to use your pun, you know, a hot topic, uh, certainly through the fall and into 2020, I think this is all we're going to be talking about. And we're really looking at, um, and I think you asked, what can the state do and what should government do? Um, as part of the last year, looking at the utility liability issue, there's a bill passed, was SB 901. Part of that bill included a blue ribbon commission to set up this uh, catastrophic wildfire commission to look at various aspects of the damages. And part of what they looked at is the home insurance market. And they have a series of findings and recommendations, some of which we agree with, some of which we don't. But I think they had one really key point that they put into their report, and that was that essentially that uh, price and availability of insurance is completely tied to risk and loss. That's what it all keys off of. And so fundamentally, to change the trajectory of risk and loss in California is what we need to do to build a healthy insurance market. Um, and so towards that end, I think, you know, it's getting at issues of defensible space and enforcement of defensible space. And I think, you know, and, and Chief Pimlot can probably speak to this better than I, but, you know, I did the state budget for a lot of years, and I don't, I don't know that we ever really funded CAL FIRE to go out and do the type of enforcement and oversight that we probably need in this environment. Um, you know, there's issues, you know, for local governments. So I saw an article from San Diego where they're, they just approved 1,100 homes uh, in an area, a high fire zone that has burned on average every 18 months for the last century. And they're going to come looking to insurers saying, why don't you come insure these homes? And we're like, well, we're pretty sure they're going to, half of them are going to burn down in the next five years. It's going to be expensive. Why is it costing $10,000 a year? Um, and so these are some of, the, some of the issues that we have to get at. But I think defensible space, um, home mitigation, um, looking at ways how, how, do, how, how is, who should help low-income people do the type of mitigation measures they need to do is going to become a sort of a social issue that we're going to have to wrap our minds around. Um, and it's, it's, you know, that's, that's where state government, I think, has a huge role to play. And I know you want to talk about legislation. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or later. Um, but certainly there were a number of bills this year that tried to get at that. You want me to get into it a little bit? or? I'm well, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ask uh, Todd about that. I'm going to ask him specifically. But then I'm going to open up to all panelists. Um, so, yeah, because I know there's, um, there's some that probably all of you have been following in terms of legislation. But I'll start with the uh, legislative person here in Placer County. Uh, Todd, with with the yeah, legislation coming out of the Capitol, and I was wondering, you know, from your point of view, managing Placer County, what wildfire-focused bills recently passed that uh, you think are good ones or ones that you really have to pay attention to uh, for your area? Where did the legislature drop the ball? And, and I'm addressing this to all of you because I feel like I've heard from many times that it seemed like there could have been, should have been more legislation coming out of wildfire, uh, wildfire mitigation or prevention or so forth, uh, but that didn't happen or got shelved. So in your role as 
CEO of Placer County, with this, with what's coming out of the Capitol, how will you uh, apply that? What do you need to pay attention to? And maybe any other city council passed legislation um, that that you're rolling out. Um, so yeah. I'll start with Todd and then I'll open up to the rest of you gentlemen. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw, and, and I, I do think there's a lot of effort that was placed on wildfire legislation. I think things got watered down as we got closer to the end. Um, you know, I think the one area, and I'll, I'll just touch on when we talk about local governments, is really about this defensible space. And as, as was mentioned previously, um, there was AB 1516, and this really talked to defensible space, not only for um, a property owner, but those that you may be your neighbor next to you. Um, we also had some issues, and I think in this county, and it's probably um, something that could transcend other areas, is that property owner may be hardening their space, may be cutting down these, these trees, but the neighbor next door to them, it may be a vacant parcel, it may be a vacant lot. Still, there's an owner of that property, and, um, you know, so if, if that is not being maintained in the same manner that you are, uh, I think that is something that, that creates significant issues for us because, um, you know, we start getting a checkerboard kind of approach to addressing um, uh, really the, the defensible space area. I think the other piece that what we saw um, and I think were challenges this year were kind of the, the cumbersome aspects that we have to go through around CEQA and some of the environmental regulations in order to do um, uh, mitigation of forestry lands that may, you know, either be um, need to be cut down, their beetle kill, a lot of other areas that um, we we really need to get in those spaces, and sometimes they take a great deal of time. And I just want to interject for yeah. for those who don't know the acronym uh, or four letter word, I guess for some people, California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA. Thank you. I've I, I need to stick with that. Um, that has really been a challenge, I think, for us as we talk about the burdensome aspects. That'd be a great legislative piece that we'd love to to work more prevalently on. Um, you know, the, I think the other thing, and probably the unique aspect of Placer County, we have um, not only private land, but we have a lot of state and federal lands, and um, we are fortunate that we've entered into two master service ag uh, agreements with our U.S. Forestry Service, which allows us to go on their property. Uh, help in partnership with them about basically um, uh, cutting down trees that may need to need to ha take place and, and discarding those in a manner that's safe. And um, I think those master stewardship agreements are really uh, a wave of the future and something that I think we've capitalized on to say, how do we work as partners? And, um, you know, this is an, an area where we are just t touching the iceberg of um, the forestry lands. And, you know, we talk about separating our utilities from, uh, you know, uh, being close proximity to forests, but they aren't healthy. And a healthy forest doesn't mean one that is overgrown and looks good. And I think the, we look at it and say, you know, this looks really great because we have a lot of trees. That is not necessarily a healthy forest. And uh, so we need some education that needs to take place. But, you know, I think the piece that uh, would be really important for us is to deal with some of the environmental regulations. Um, it just to beginning the process to get and dispose of those. That'd be good, some good legislation, I think, coming out at the state level. Uh, anyone else have any bills that maybe we should know about that passed or maybe next legislative session that um, touch on wildfire? 
Ken? Well, just to kind of backtrack a little bit, the, you've heard about Senate Bill 901. I mean, there were people up here on the dais as well as folks out there in the audience that really were the force behind getting that passed. And you know, that came out of the 2017 uh, fires. And uh, there was just a lot to work on. And that there was so much in that bill that benefited. You've heard about uh, hazard mitigation plans for uh, the utilities, but it also provided, as Todd said, it provided uh, support out in the um, in the field for getting work done. And so there has been you know, significant work done. Uh, at the same time, Senate Bill 803 passed, which is really dealing with the alert and warning systems in the state, which is such a critical piece of what happened both um, in the North Bay fires, but again, then again in the Camp Fire uh, and the Car Fire. And so you know, now the state's required to have uh, a report that they provide quarterly that talks about how we're improving those systems and putting things in place. So some good things happened there. Personally, I certainly would like to have seen more work done um, on the legacy construction issue. So much of our construction in the state is pre-2008 Wildland Urban Interface Building Standards. But I recognize that that's a heavy lift. There's a lot uh, of stakeholders out there. There are costs involved. There are politics. So those are challenges, and, and hopefully that will live again to fight uh, another day. Uh, but I do think that um, we have a lot to work with now, and getting some of the things done that we've already legislated are going to be key. And Saren. Sure, sure, I'll kick in. Actually, you mentioned AB 1516. That's a bill that I worked on quite a bit this year with Assemblywoman Friedman's office. Um, originally, it actually had a WUI uh, risk model that they were going to develop by the state in conjunction with CAL FIRE. Um, and as you noted, it got watered down towards the end, and that got pulled out for cost concerns. Um, but it does create this new ember-resistant zone around homes, and 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 really that that ember, the ember flowing ahead of fires, is one of the biggest, is, I think, is the biggest cause of these house fires. Um, so that's really important. Uh, Assemblyman Woods, AB 38, uh, started the year very ambitious would have set up a billion dollar uh, revolving loan fund to help fund mitigation of homes in California, to help people harden their homes. Um, that got scaled back, but it does have sort of this ability for OES and CAL FIRE to do this joint pilot project, drawing down some federal funds that will try to do, can we do some sort of community mitigation fund and help people uh, harden their homes? Um, I think some of the good news, I don't know if a lot of people caught it, but at the end of session, uh, Governor Newsom in his sort of closing uh, statement, he talked about we need to get to work on a uh, bond, a statewide geo bond, to do wild, more wildfire resilience. And I think that's really interesting, this idea of starting to think about California's uh, you know, fire infrastructure or mitigation infrastructure as critical public infrastructure that you could start thinking about as bond funding, the way you would levies, the way you would affordable housing, um, we've done with watershed. And so that really sets up a very, I think, important conversation for next year to see how we're gonna fund these types of projects. One other bill I'll give a shout out is uh, Senator Dodd's SB 190, and that deals with the state fire marshal, also developing a model defensible space program. And uh, actually the insurers were gonna help uh, advise them on some of what types of materials they should use for that. So hopefully all those things will make some progress. And if I remember correctly, uh, Senator, it's Bill Dodd from Napa, which got hit hard. Correct. Right? And Michael, what about you? 
I, I rarely look to the legislature for solutions. I think that it's absurd to think that uh, uh, on an annual basis that we're going to come up with really uh, comprehensive solutions to problems that we've been building ourselves into for over a hundred years. So um, I'm sorry. I you know I just I don't Honesty think I, 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 I don't think there's a missing bill. You know, we usually I start the year out and I'm begging legislators not to make things worse. Uh, as they frequently do. Now, you know, I have a lot of respect for the work that Saren did with his boss, and I think that they were very thoughtful. But let's face it, you're not going to come up with comprehensive solutions on a one-year basis. You can do little things that will make things better, and hopefully you don't do anything to make things worse. I think that there's a larger set of questions that we have to ask ourselves is how do we coexist with both changing in, changes in nature, what do we do to, to, to reduce the impact of those changes? But here in, 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 in the issue of forest lands, I, can hear, I keep hearing crackpot ideas. We're going to build a lot of, uh, of biomass burning facilities across the state there that are going to burn the forests and make us all safe. I'm sorry. You know, we, the only place that's worked is where we have a thriving forestry industry where there are people who are working in the forest harvesting and then going back to tend to the land. Now the fact that we haven't done that very well doesn't, doesn't address the fact that we've made a shift away from having a, a strong forestry industry in California and we've taken the, 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 a lot of the funding out of CAL FIRE for forestry activities, and they've, they've, they are in the position now of becoming a firefighting agency. And I think that there are still really good foresters there, but we need to really give them the resources we need to unleash a new kind of sustainable forestry that can bring a different kind of pattern of both living and working in the forest. And you're not going to get that in a one-year bill, for Christ's sakes. Yeah, I think actually Wade Crowfoot mentioned that bringing back a, a kind of an economy, forestry-based economy, um, and that's something he's working on or saying he's planning to do. So I'd like to invite people to come up to the mic uh, there at the back of the room to ask questions. So while you're lining up, or write down your questions and bring them to that man in the blue. Uh, so while you're coming up with your burning questions, another pun there, I do have one. I think I'm going to start with you, Ken. We kind of talked about this a little bit briefly. There was a story in the Los Angeles Times. So when I'm researching this, I thought it was really interesting about forest thinning. And uh, it was a, a pretty, they got a lot of opinions about forest thinning and um, Gavin Newsom, our governor, uh, spending $32 million um, to thin trees and clear shrubs, shrubs uh, from high-risk zones, where a lot of the uh, people that they quoted in the story were saying, that's kind of a waste of money. It should be more on hardening homes, um, building homes that are more uh, wildfire-proof, or uh, reinforcing the ones that are already currently um, uh, standing. Put the money more in that, uh, in making the homes withstand fire, and less on putting fire breaks that sometimes, in their words, don't work. I wanted to get your take on that, you know, fire breaks versus um, hardening homes, and what's the happy medium, if there is one? Yeah, easy. Uh, the individuals quoted in that Los Angeles Times article have a long history of getting it wrong, uh, and they continued to get it 
significantly wrong in this article. 100% agree that hardening homes, working on our communities, the infrastructure, all of that is key. We've got to continue to work on that. Uh, but understand, our vegetation around these communities is feeding a blowtorch. And wouldn't we want to take the opportunity to reduce the amount of fuel going to that blowtorch to reduce the intensity of it? So this is a multi-pronged effort using every tool in the toolbox. We're going to harden the structures, but then we're going to go out and we're going to reduce the fuel loading so that the intensity of that fire when it hits the community is much less. Gives firefighters a fighting chance. The article talked about, well, firefighters aren't even going to show up because they're too busy. Well, I will tell you, after doing this for over 30 years, firefighters are going to go to those areas where they can make a stand and make a difference. And if you put in fuel breaks where they can safely fight fire and, and, and bring in aircraft to put retardant and put uh, hose lines in to fight the fire uh, in a way that's effective, they're absolutely going to go there. So we need to utilize all of the tools. And it's not just the fuel breaks. It's going deeper into the forest. Uh, as Todd talked about, it's thinning so that we're not only improving the forest health so the trees that are left out there are healthy, they're not dying from insect uh, attack, they're not uh, half dead so that their uh, crowns are um, volatile to combustion by fire. Uh, and so again, that the fire stays on the forest floor, doesn't run through the canopies like the King Fire did uh, in 2014, where we now have uh, basically a, a fire scar that still uh, is not regrowing and regenerating a mixed conifer forest. It is a shrub, very fire-prone ecosystem now. I want to know if anyone else wanted to weigh in on this, like hardening homes, because um, it seems like that's something where, um, I guess if I lived here, I would be thinking more seriously about what do I do with my house that's standing? Obviously, there's wildfire mitigation around the area uh, that my insurance company is telling me to do, but what about keeping my home standing? Are there things I should do internally, externally, outside the home with roofs or walls or whatever? So I'm a big Michael. believer in belts and suspenders. You know, when my life depends on it, I uh, not only do I have a belt on my pants, but I wear a harness when I'm up on the roof. So I, th I think that, uh, that that's, a, that's a solid principle here. But there's more to it than that. I think the idea that you don't do vegetation clearance around evacuations, which is not homes, if you don't actually defend uh, and give pe a firefighter times to actually get in and you know the, all the hardening in the world is not going to do you any good as, uh, as Saren uh, pointed out that there are many communities that were hardened that still burn so I, I just think that that people tend to look for easy cheap solutions when we're facing a much more dramatic set of challenges Todd. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I think we, we've experienced is, you know, we're trying to encourage this hardening and, and having defensible space around your home. Um, but as a property owner, they're always looking for that return on investment. And these are very sizable investments, uh, specifically when you're t cutting down trees around your property or you're putting up uh, different type of siding, new roofing material, um, and they're looking for an investment. And what they're seeing is the insurance company isn't taking that look and making determinations about homeowners uh, insurance. And so, you know, I think that's one of the areas that we really need to deal with is how is
is the insurance industry looking at uh, homeowners insurance and saying, if you're doing these sort of things, what is the benefit to the property owner? Um, we can educate as much as we want, but it's also a financial uh, and a economic situation for many uh, property owners. And then uh, they want to make that investment, but they also want to know that there's a financial return as well. And so we're encouraging this and looking at ways uh, from a local government standpoint to not only uh, educate folks about the importance of that, but what are incentives to drive that sort of behavior, whether it's PACE programs, other sort of things that have low interest loans to assist with this, to encourage this activity to take place. So like, you know, as the other panelists, I think there's a multi-pronged approach, but um, when we're talking at the grassroots level, we're talking about how do we encourage uh, property owners to do it and getting a benefit. And Sarah. Yeah, yeah so obviously I have to, um, I think there is a little bit of a misnomer. I actually got a uh, some information from one of our companies today that they actually do look at the type of materials you use with your home. Um, you'll, you know, your price will adjust if you have a, you know, a fireproof roof, that's going to affect your, your prices and your premiums. If you have um, certain windows, you know, do you have skylights? Um, all the, those things do get factored in. Certainly, I, don't, I can't say does every company do that or not, but companies do look at those type of measures. Um, so that, that is certainly as part of it. If you, if you have a house that's built after 2008, um, you know, if you go kind of in, on, online and you start filling out your, here's my home, you know, what's my premium going to be? And I'll ask you, when's your house built? And if your house is built after 2008, you'll see those numbers just start dropping because you're up to those new building codes. So those things do matter. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the conversation that, that happens um, with folks is they think there's an easy, well, gee, if I just mitigate A, B, and C, then everybody should just guarantee me a renewal and everything should be okay. And I think that's a much more complicated conversation because as we talked about, you can, you can do all these measures and the whole town can still burn down. And so you've gotten, you know, there's, it really gets complicated because insurers have to about concentration risk. We can't just take any comer that wants to be insured um, because if you have one big fire goes out this whole town and you've taken everyone in that town because they mitigated, then you're out of business. Um, and so that's, you know, while it feels like an easy panacea to say, well, gee, if I could just mitigate this and everyone should insure me, it's really much more difficult than that. But certainly in your pricing, those factors do get considered. All right, and I have a question actually, if, well, or when the fire hits, uh, Ken, you had mentioned uh, uh, legislate the legislation about um, fire alarm, or you know technology being used to uh, monitor spread of fire or before it even starts, or you know uh, tracking it. And I was wondering, you know, in for all of you, what you think fire alarm systems and technologies uh, should uh, high risk zones have in place? And also, I guess. Again, there was a story, I cannot remember which one, but I, Ken, I think you were quoted in saying maybe some kind of hunker-in-place structures should be considered if you don't have time, if you're in a rural town, like Paradise, one road in, one road out, you may have to consider, if I can't get out and stay in place, uh, some structure that would, you know, the fire would go over. So for, for um, uh, currently standing towns or ones that are thinking about building out or, or brand new communities, 
what should be set in place uh, to alert people when a fire is coming and in case the worst happens when you're there and the fire hits, what uh, could be put in place to um, make sure there's fewer fatalities? I'll start with you, Ken. Okay, so hitting a couple of those first, the, the early warning alerts are the challenge because in a case like the campfire, uh, it was really a matter of minutes before that fire was impacting Concow and Polga and those communities. But as we continue to refine our ability to not only forecast, but track and get data, as Michael talked about, utilizing um, weather stations. PG&E has put up you know, hundreds of uh, weather stations. Michael talked about how uh, Southern, um, or San Diego Gas and Electric uh, has been using that and everybody else in the area using that data. Sharing of the data so that we have more micro information in individual drainages on uh, not just prediction but on fire movement so the more we can have better intel and situational awareness the better we can feed into our evacuation alert systems and provide you know better more real-time information targeting the right neighborhoods is always going to be a challenge because knowing which direction the fire is going to go and is an absolute challenge uh, it can be more dangerous to over-evacuate a community because you put people at risk. In the case of the Orville Dam or Spillway uh, uh, issue, we put almost 200,000 people uh, on the road, and uh, there's risk. There are traffic accidents, all the health care, all of that. So we have to continue to refine how we do that. In the case of the campfire, yes, people survived because there was no other way to get out of the community. Roads were impassable, so they were sheltered in place in a very organic way by firefighters uh, in the Rite Aid parking lot. Uh, it worked, but it only worked because firefighters were there. They were able to organize, calm the public, uh, and have the resources necessary uh, to allow that fire front to pass over them. And so it, what I've been talking about, evacuation is always our absolute first priority. We need to have our communities so that evacuation routes are appropriate to handle that volume to get people out. But knowing these fires are burning the way that they're burning, there may be needs to look at these individual communities and have some process in place if there needs to shelter. But it needs to be an organized uh, function where they go to a central place. Having people shelter in place in their own homes does not work. Um, uh, Australia saw that in the Black Sunday uh, a decade ago, and hundreds of people died because they thought they could withstand the fire in their home. And when it got there, they got scared, and so they left, and they died out in the street. No different happened in Butte County, or in, um, in the Butte fire in Amador and in Calaveras County in 2015. Uh, people were burned in their driveways and in the streets in their vehicles as they were leaving with the fire front coming. So it's a very dangerous place to be, and so we have to look at sheltering in place very carefully if we're going to do that. What about like a fire alarms, you know, that just blare at the first uh, sign of fire, or um, uh, cell phone alerts, like an amber alert? Do we have those in place? Are those, ha are those effective? I mean, So Michael we actually do have a variety of cell phone alerts. A problem has been, of course, that the, uh, in a lot of communities, one of the first things to go down is the, is the wires that carry information to cell towers. Um, and so if you're depending on that, and that's one of the, 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 the scenarios that plays out, ain't enough. People also tend to procrastinate. They get the alarm, they figure, well, maybe I'm gonna go back and get a couple more mementos. Or they think, well, maybe I can just wait this out, I'll wait and see. 
or they, it goes off too frequently. So I, I, don't, I don't think that there's any one solution. And I think that the more people try to find that one solution, the more they're going to create deaths. So there's no solution? No, there's no one solution. What is a possible solution? So I'd start with something people here have talked about, which is more education. You know, I, you know, here's an example from work I did for 10 years on flood protection. We, you know, we're trying to get people in Yuba and Sutter counties to invest in more uh, levy infrastructure and to get capture some federal dollars to actually increase their protection against what we knew were going to be bigger floods than anybody had ever planned on. And so we got, we got through to people after a while. This one lady came and she said, I'm all for actually improving our flood protection, but you know, while we were at it, can you move that big mound of dirt that's between me and the river so that I can see the river? Well, that was the levee that was protecting her against the past 20 years of floods. So if people don't understand the nature of the threat, simple solutions don't give them the full information they need to know how to behave. So it's more than just an alarm. It is what they tried to do in, in, in uh, Paradise, which is to have practice, you know, but they failed to do it in the, in the right kind of scenario. They thought that everybody would leave when they were supposed to. They thought that the, that the fires wouldn't burn poles down, burn down buildings that fell into the streets that impeded. They didn't think that the major arterial out would get uh, cut off. So I think that, the, that it's not just educating citizens, it actually is the planners who need to actually have better tools to understand. I, this is a big issue, and we're not going to solve it with simple stuff. All right. This is your last chance to give to the mic and ask a question because I have a couple more and then we have to start winding it down. I feel we only scratched the surface, but that's just how it is. So last chance, anyone, before I go to mine. Um, I, I'm gonna try and lump a, a few questions into one, but I think we, uh, using Paradise as an example, um, rebuild again, rebuild Paradise. Um, should it be rebuilt? I guess some people even question that. Uh, how should it be rebuilt differently uh, going forward? And I think there's, um, when I was up there recently talking with people, uh, they had just talked about uh, utilities, uh, future utilities build out, power lines will run underground, it's gonna cost a lot of money. Um, looking at the way they evacuate the one road in out and getting rid of that. Um, so I'm wondering for all of you, say you are uh, the urban planners, for whatever place, a, a place that's currently uh, already situated in a high-risk zone or they're planning to build. Like Tejon Ranch, I think, is that community, Saren, that you mentioned uh, out near LA that's, uh, how many homes? 50,000 and uh, it's in like the red zone. Uh, but it's, I guess, the city council or whatever local government organization approved uh, that being built. Board of Supervisors. The Board of Supervisors, thank you. So in terms of if you could put on, if you had the magic, well, well maybe not a magic wand, but if you would say, all right, if you're going to build or rebuild, here's what you should do. Here's what I would tell you to do in terms of rebuilding smartly, uh, safely, uh, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of uh, planning where homes should go, where they should not go. Um, anything to, to, to better fireproof uh, that town community 
area. All right, Saren. Okay, yeah, uh, so I'm, you know, I'm not an urban planner, and I think, you know, for, certainly historically for insurers, um, they've stayed out of trying to tell local government where they should and should not build. That's, that's sort of been the historic position there. Um, of course, as we're starting to see this tension now around, um, well, where's the insurance? You know, you, you guys need to step up, and, and we're going to go build wherever we want. I think that's something that we're going to have to think a little bit more about. Um, and certainly, if people are going to rebuild in those areas or in high fire areas generally, I think what you've heard up here today is that there is a new view of wildfire risk and folks need to reasonably expect that insurance is going to cost a lot more than it used to. Um, I, you know, I didn't know earlier when you start talking about premiums, but one thing I was going to mention was that if you go back to like 2000, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners data, right, that they have out there, and if you, they look at average uh, homeowners premiums across the nation. And if you look back at 2006, 2007, California's average homeowners premiums were probably in the top 14 in the nation. And then over the past decade, they really just plummeted down to probably around 32nd highest in the nation. And that's not even accounting for sort of uh, the higher cost of living in California and income, where we'd be around almost the bottom, like 49th in the nation. And what's happened is the U.S., in the U.S., the average insurance premium has gone up 45% uh, from 2007 to 2016, whereas in California, it's gone up about 8.1%, half, half of inflation over that time. And so you've got risks going exponentially up, and you've got basically uh, suppression, really, of homeowners insurance premiums over the decade prior to these two catastrophic fires. And the, the result of that is really what you're seeing. You've sort of, suddenly you've got this problem. We've had these really low insurance premiums. Now you've got these sky high risks. And while it was great for consumers for about a decade, um, now you've got this problem where you're trying to make up 10 years of low suppressed premiums in suddenly one or two years because of these unanticipated catastrophic fires. And so I think we're not going to yet to the point where we're going to tell local governments where they should and shouldn't build or that we won't insure if you do. But people have to have a reality check about that thinking about your insurance is going to be part of that equation. So I think that's the cautionary tale. Todd. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a, a good point. I will say, um, you know, when we talk about land use planning and really that local governance aspect, you know, we've done it in kind of a, an isolation for a long time. We have planners sit in the county or city jurisdiction making determinations about this. Um, and usually the fire department's the last one. Uh, they're picking up the tab after the decision has been made. How do we deal with this? And whether it's building permits, uh, going in, making sure that the they're um, structured appropriately. And we've kind of taken a little different paradigm here. Um, CAL FIRE, fortunately, is um, uh, one of the many 
uh, fire service providers we have in this county. Um, but we uh, were specifically working on a project uh, for a park, uh, a large scale park that we're looking to expand. And um, instead of sitting there making determinations in isolation, we have asked Cal Fire to have conversations about how is their service delivery going to happen and how do we mitigate for that. And I think that's a different conversation than maybe what's been taking place a long time, especially in these um, areas where we have high fire danger. I think the other piece is we talk about building codes and how we deal with uh, building materials. Part of these um, land use areas, if people are going to be building and continue to build in these areas, we need to make sure that there's certain building codes and, and building materials that they're using. Um, that's just part of the requirement of, of, of living in these sort, certain areas. Um, you know, I think the other uh, piece that I'd say is we can't, we've already got the genie out of the bottle. Um, we have made decisions about people living in these certain areas. Um, doesn't mean that we can't uh, limit that uh, growth, uh, but we have individuals already living here. And so um, we're really talking about how do we have other entrances in and out of areas that may have been prone to a, a single entrance. Um, I look at Forest Hill in this area and I would um, and I was fortunate to spend time right after the Paradise Fire going up and taking a look at that. Um, I could probably put that and, and overlay Paradise onto what how Forest Hill is kind of laid out. Um, there's some concerns and um, we want to be proactive about that in terms of entrances in and out and if you're going to live in that area be very cognizant of the concerns that you have especially when you get in canyon areas uh, such as we have here that uh, that fire may just run right up the hill and and uh, we want to be able to evacuate in a timely manner. So really a couple thoughts I had around this. Um, I just don't think it's it's a one-shot scenario um, it's something we need to deal with because uh, we already we already have made decisions about where people reside in some of those areas uh, Ken and Michael I like to yeah I, I'm gonna give you the last word I think we'll make this the last question because I feel like Saren and Todd you you kind of answered my question where you know uh, people come here to live because it's a beautiful place and you have you're up there with the trees and uh, fresh air and uh, uh, you know nature but then again, you have got trees and you have wind coming through in nature. Uh, so there's the, the pluses and the cons. But again, I mean, if people are going to come here and you can't, you know, pay them to go away, they're going to stay. Um, what would you want people like Todd to do if you had the way, you know, with your experience, what would you advise uh, for planners and then for residents? So uh, can you start? Well, so Todd really nailed it. It was uh, historically uh, fire chiefs were always sort of the last at the discussion when after all the local discussions happened, so it was difficult uh, to, to make change. And, you know, if you have if the fire chiefs and the fire department wait, everything would be, you know, asbestos. It wouldn't burn, right? And it's not practical. I think everybody gets that. Uh, so at the end of the day, um, what are the tools that we have to be at the table? And Progress has been made there. You know, following the disastrous Oakland Hills fire in the early 1990s, uh, legislation was passed. It was called the Bates Bill. That's what requires Cal Fire to map all of the, hazard, the fire hazard zones around the state, not just in state responsibility area, but in all of the local responsibility areas as well. All that information is provided 
to local government so that they can make decisions uh, when they're making land use planning, when they're building uh, their safety elements of their uh, county general plans. The challenge we had over time was it was difficult to enact. There wasn't funding. Uh, about five or six years ago, we were able to, with additional legislation, provide staff support to go out and work with counties, just like Todd's talking about with uh, CAL FIRE and others working locally. How do we get our, our uh, technical advice in there early on? And so that's where we want to be. We want to be able to continue uh, at the ground floor providing that. It, granted, Todd's absolutely right. The genie's out of the bottle. As I talked about, there's so much legacy construction. We need to look in those areas and how we can fix access and other things, but continue to work on these new developments and make sure we're conditioning them in a way that we're all comfortable. All right, and Michael, last word. I'm going to point to a different pattern of, uh, uh, that we keep falling into, which is the disaster of the month club. And so, you know, the, we go from fires to flood danger to earthquake risk to uh, sea level rise and tsunami risk. And, you know, I'll just say that Safety functions throughout the state of California are distributed at the local level across many state agencies, and there's not a lot of central thinking about it. It's why we had to go and figure out how we could learn how to work with CAL FIRE, and they learned how to work with, with us to be able to get the utilities to do the right thing. And so I don't think that's, that's a perfect model is to wait for a disaster. It's sort of the theory that... Uh, that where does good judgment come from? Good judgment comes from experience. Where does experience come from? It comes from bad judgment. So do we want to, to actually think about the state in those terms? We don't have that one place in the state where people think about safety in that way. And we have a really good agency, the Offices of Emergency Services, which is good at responding but we don't have a, a thoughtful place where they're looking at new and emerging risks and trying to catch these things early and to be able to force the discussion and to actually make it happen across the state rather than being where people have figured out the hard way that they better pay attention. Actually, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with one last question for all four of you because it just jogged my memory there in terms of, you know, another legislative session's coming up in January and uh, officially it's winter, but who knows what will happen with fires between now and then. Maybe that will jog their memory that um, that's something to address. Just quickly, all four of you, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I think there's something that you'll, you'll come up with in terms of when the session starts again in January, when it comes to what we all talked about, what would you like to see uh, back on the table or introduced and ideally passed so that it would uh, help things along? One, one solution, not, not the solution, but maybe one thing. Michael. Don't do anything until we figure out what makes the most difference. Ken. Well, I, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but I would certainly like us to continue to tackle that difficult challenge of looking back and working on some of the existing infrastructure and what are some incentives to try to um, help us get that fixed. Saren. Okay, so I'm going to sound like the one note here, but I think, like I said, availability and affordability of insurance is tied to risk and loss. And so I really would like to see them go with the governor on this idea of 
wildfire resilient, uh, uh, you know, big investment from the state in that type of effort of, of defense, defensible space and home mitigation and hardening and a big effort to sort of bend the trajectory on that risk. And last word, Todd. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I touched on this before. I, do, I think the environmental regulations and being able to get out in the forest in a timely manner is really important. And, you know, as I touched on, we talked about individuals, but we're also talking about watersheds. We're talking about major core infrastructure that I don't think individual residents realize when we have major fires that those materials go right down into our water supply system and and uh, specifically up here in Placer and uh, we provide water to a lot of uh, residents throughout the state and um, so maintaining that that watershed is really critically important and so getting out there in a timely manner I think would be a one one really key benefit for us to to move forward rapidly. Well obviously it's a big topic and and we always scratch the surface, uh, but I, I hope that we all learned a lot, um, and we still live here. A lot, I don't think a lot of us are gonna move. So thank you very much, panelists, for taking the time talking to us about this. Thank you, audience. Um, I'm sure it's a topic we're gonna be revisiting uh, down the road um, more than once. So with that, we'll call it a night, and thank you again. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Policy in a Pint conversation about California's wildfire season was held on September 17, 2019 at the Odd Fellows Hall in Auburn, California. Thanks to our panelists, Todd Leopold, Michael Picker, Ken Pimlot, and Saren Taylor for the great conversation. A special thanks to Odd Fellows Hall manager, Ed Sprocka, for hosting this event. To Heather Williams from the California Natural Resources Agency, Pascal Fussholer from UbaNet for helping set up this event. From Placer County, thanks goes to Lisa Burleson, Wendy Williams, Eric Bergen, and Chris Gray for promoting and filming the event for us. To Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. Our volunteer extraordinaires, Gary and Yvonne Richardson. Thanks for helping the event run smoothly. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.